Let's go ahead and open our Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. We finished 1 Samuel this morning. We're in chapter 31. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. That's our text. The topic we're going to find there is this. Not wanting to be captured and tortured by the Philistines, a wounded King Saul falls on his own sword. The title of our message, The Sword in the Saul. Let's have a word of prayer. (laughs) You guys make me laugh. Cut it out. This is serious stuff. Father, thank you so much for your word. We've been preparing for it, Lord, all week, whether we know it or not. You've drawn us to this place so that you could speak to us in a real and a powerful way by your Holy Spirit. How remarkable you are, Lord, to see each heart to be able to divide between the soul and the spirit in each life and to deliver to us just the message that each of us needs to hear, a word of comfort and encouragement in our walk with you or perhaps, Lord, for someone who's here that isn't a believer, a message of hope and eternal life. Lord, our greatest desire is that you would just have your way with us as a church and as individuals now as we approach your word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The expression, fall on your sword, has the modern figurative meaning of taking personal responsibility for a group action that has gone bad. It, of course, originates from the literal practice of committing suicide by falling on your sword. Some say it is the anglicized version of the ancient samurai custom of committing suicide by disemboweling yourself. Now, we call that Harry Carey because of an 1856 article in Harper's Magazine that actually misspelled the words, I'm told that it's Harakiri. And so this is your conversation starter for tomorrow. Uh, Try and work in the phrase Harakiri uh, into a sentence, and then your friends will say, well, no, it's Harry Carey. And you say, well, no, actually, it's Harakiri. And I learned that at church where we learned that Jesus is coming. That's anyway, falling on your sword has come to describe something noble, something honorable, something to be admired. King Saul fell on his sword. He did it to avoid being captured and tortured after he led Israel to a miserable defeat at the hands of the Philistines. His actions were anything but noble, honorable or to be admired. Saul was called by God to be the first king of Israel. It was a high calling. He walked unworthy of his high calling. Surrounding Saul's unworthiness are a few individuals who walked worthy of their high callings. Saul's three sons walked worthy of their calling by submitting to their father, even though it cost them their lives on the field of battle. Saul's armor bearer walked worthy of his calling by falling on his sword once Saul was dead. And the valiant men of Jabesh Gilead walked worthy of their calling by risking their lives in Philistine territory to go retrieve Saul's body and that of his sons to give them a proper funeral. Now, all this talk of walking worthy and unworthy of callings reminds you of the verse in Ephesians. It's Ephesians 4.1 that encourages us, and I quote, walk worthy of the calling to which you were called. From looking at the characters in our text, We can learn some things about finishing strong by walking worthy of our high calling as believers in Jesus Christ. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, 
You don't want to finish wrong by walking unworthy of your calling. Number two, you do want to finish strong by walking worthy of your calling. Let's take a look, first of all, in the first ten verses, finishing wrong. Now, when we talk about our calling as believers in Jesus Christ, we simply mean that as saved individuals, we are to walk, we are to conduct ourselves in ways that are worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. It, of course, doesn't mean that we're perfect or that we never fail or fall short. It does mean that we press on in our walk knowing that God, who began a good work in us, is going to perform it and complete it until the day we see Jesus. Now, within your calling as a Christian are your specific roles and responsibilities. Things like being a husband or a wife, a parent or a child, an employer or an employee, a citizen, uh, your church membership, things like that. It is in those roles and responsibilities where we determine whether we're going to walk worthy or unworthy. And so, you know, maybe just in a typical day you get up as a Christian and you think, Lord, I want to walk worthy of this calling. I want to properly represent you. I want to conduct myself the way a Christian should. And then the Lord says, all right, well, I've got you in a home environment. I've got you in a work environment. I've got you out in the world. I've got you here, there. And this is where you're going to work out that worthy walk. Now, Saul was a saved man whose further calling was to be Israel's king. He failed. Let's see what we can learn from his failure. In verse 1, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines. They fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Taking a quick look back over the recent history of Saul's monarchy, you see that he had become obsessed with defeating David. All of Saul's energies and resources were dedicated to that one single pursuit. I think we can therefore conclude that he gave little thought to guarding against and preparing for war with the Philistines, even though this seems like it was an annual event. Every year the Philistines came out against the Israelites, but Saul had neglected his responsibilities there. Now, there are many things that can distract you as you are walking with the Lord. Some of them, perhaps most of them, are not sinful in and of themselves. You know, it's easy to sit here and, and think, well, I, you know, Saul, Saul was a nut job. I mean, he was way out there. And, and even in, on my worst day, I'm not Saul. And so as long as I guard against that, I'm going to be okay. But in reality, there are a lot of things that can distract us that they're not sinful in and of themselves. But are they really helpful spiritually? Do they build others up? Are they furthering God's work on the earth? If not, they may lead you to walk in a manner that is unworthy of your high calling simply by competing for your time and your resources. And that's why the scripture tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. Saul did not. He wasn't really busy running the kingdom. He wasn't busy uh, furthering the kingdom of God. He was trying to destroy the kingdom of God, as it were, by killing David, who was going to be the next king. And so he didn't live up to his high calling, but you and I can. Now, verse 2. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. Now, we're going to talk about the valor, uh, valor rather, of Saul's sons under our second point. For now, we would note that Saul's unworthy walk had devastating effects on his children. 
If you've been a Christian for more than 10 minutes, you know that the world wants to destroy your family. And by the world, I'm talking about the fact that you become a Christian, you're born again, and you realize that the world that you've been living in is a hostile environment. There's a system in place that seeks to tear down Christians and to destroy their lives. Uh, The devil is the god of this world, the Bible says, the prince of the power of the air, and he's against you. And then you find that there's a war in your in your own body, in your flesh, as it were, with what some call your old sin nature. And so all of this is working against you to try and destroy your family. Why the family? Well, because it's really the first thing that God did. God created the world. He made Adam. And then he said, you know, Adam, everything's great except one thing. You need to help me. And so he made Eve and he brought her to Adam. And right there before there was uh, any government, before there were churches, before there were any institutions of any kind, God established that society is a man and a woman married with children uh, and and that that is the fundamental building block. And so, of course, if you're the devil, you think, "Hmm, I'm going to go at that. I'm going to destroy that. I'm going to undercut them, do everything that I can to destroy families. And so God wants you to know this. Now, you can have a successful marriage. You can train up your kids in the way that they should go. When they are old, they will not depart from it. These are promises that God makes you in his word. But you can't afford to be distracted. You can't afford to walk in an unworthy manner and think that all of that is going to take care of itself. It requires time and attention. Verse 3, the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Now, the New Testament compares some of the devil's attacks against us to fiery darts, as if they're being shot against us, Ephesians 6.16. We are able to quench them, the Bible says, by taking the shield of faith. And so, you know, we don't need to get overly concerned about the devil and all of these things because... Jesus has won a victory on the cross. We just need to be aware of it. And we're going to have to walk by faith when he's firing his darts at us. Saul had long ago quit walking by faith. He navigated the world by his own wisdom and wiles. And again, even if you're not in sin, be careful of trusting in your own wisdom. It's a um, pitfall, I think of getting older in the Lord. I mean, it's it's great to be older in the Lord and to be, you know, uh, a Christian for many years. But it's a pitfall where we can think that we've got some things figured out, uh, that we, we really have some areas of our life totally under control. We almost don't really need God's help anymore. And so somebody asks a question, bam, we've got the answer. Uh, a situation comes up, man, this is my decision. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we need to have the same innocence that we had when we were first saved and the same wonder and the same sense of submission. And we have to at least take a minute and wait on the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to say right now? What do you want me to do right now? Where do you want me to go? I think I've got all this figured out, Lord, but uh, I see that you do some different things with your people in the scriptures. Uh, and I want to be open to that. And so we want to continue to walk by faith waiting upon the Lord uh, and not walking by sight. Verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through. And uh, He says abuse me, but he means torture me. <coughs> but his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. 
And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. We'll have more to say about this faithful armor bearer. Right now, again, we're focusing on Saul. His solution to defeat Uh, His solution to the defeat he brought upon Israel and himself was suicide. Saul was the king of Israel. He ought to have taken his stand and fought to the end. Instead, he ended the fight. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin. It's all too possible for a believer to get so depressed that in a moment of disobedience they take their own life. I'm not excusing it. I'm simply explaining it. A Christian can commit a sort of spiritual suicide as well without taking their own life. They do it by taking their own lives into their own hands. You can self-murder your marriage or your family or your job or whatever other responsibility or role you have by ignoring clear biblical principles. Instead, take your stand on biblical principles. Fight on to the end. Don't in that sense, fall on your sword. Verse 6, So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Saul's choice to walk unworthy of his high calling affected Every Israelite, they literally had to leave their homes and flee their cities because they had been defeated. Your choices, my choices, affect every believer. Christians are compared to building blocks in a building. We're compared to the parts of a human body. It means that we're connected and meant to be connected. We complete each other. When we walk unworthy, the building or the body suffers. Now, the hard thing about this is that we're talking spiritually. Uh, In Saul's case, the physical example was he walked in an unworthy manner. He brought defeat on the nation and people literally had to move out of their houses. They literally had to flee for their lives. In the church, we don't always sense that somebody falls or something happens over here. I get involved in this or you get involved in that. And, and I don't have to move out. I, nobody's ever called and said, hey, you know, so-and-so fell into sin, so get out of your house. Leave now. The whole church now has to move out. Uh, and so we, we have a tendency to think that it's not significant. But it's more significant because something's happening in a spiritual dimension. So why am I saying all this? Well, number one, it's true. But number two, I think it's a great motivation to continue to walk worthy with the Lord, of the Lord, to think about your family and to think about your friends and to think about your church and all the other people around you. Because if you're a Christian, and since you're a Christian, you have somewhere in your heart an others-oriented understanding. Sure, we get selfish and we push that to the side. But, you know, the, the root of it, you know, Jesus, because of compassion for others, came and died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead. Filled with compassion for others. And if you're a Christian, you have that compassion, the compassion of the Christ. And if you and I, I think, would think about what we're doing with relation to other people, I think it would help greatly to keep us walking worthy of the Lord. You know, I think I can do this and it's not going to affect anybody, but in reality it's going to affect everybody. And if I think that way, it'll keep me on the path that I need to be on. 
So it happened, verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head. They stripped his armor. They sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Saul ended up conquered by his enemies with his flesh literally on display. It's representative of exactly how he had lived. He had early on in his walk been conquered by his flesh. In every episode, you see his flesh on display as he yielded to his carnal base nature. Now, by way of application, there's an obvious one and there's a more subtle one. The obvious application comes from passages like Galatians 5, where we are told to not walk in the flesh. And then some of the works of the flesh are listed. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissension, heresy, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Just as an aside, these, these uh, lists, they're not uh, comprehensive, it's just representative, but they always blow my mind. I'm reading along, and I, yeah, adultery, fornication, murder, and then I come to something like hatred and contention, an outburst of wrath. Outburst of wrath is an interesting one because a lot of people today are convinced they have anger issues. Do you have anger issues? Don't raise your hand, please. If you, if you do, you're going to be really mad at me right now. But, uh, you know, the, and, and there's a thought that I, I just can't control myself. I have outbursts of wrath. And yet then, so then I get to Galatians 5 and I'm reading that and God says, yeah, that's just like sorcery. That's like murders and drunkenness. Man, I better get a handle on this. And the handle I better get needs to come from within. It needs to be the fruit of the Spirit, uh, not some crazy uh, counting to ten or something like that. Now, the more subtle application also comes from a passage in Galatians. It's chapter 3, verse 3, where the Apostle Paul asks us, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In context, Paul was talking to believers who wanted to adopt rules and rites and rituals. They wanted to have diets and dress and days as their means of walking with Jesus. And, I, you know, we still do that today if we're not careful. We start well, you're born again, if you're, especially if you're saved later in life. You're born again and radically saved, radically transformed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And sooner or later, somebody comes along and says, hey, that's great, you've made a great start. Now what you need to add to that is water baptism. Because you're not really saved unless you're water baptized. Really? Wow, that's scary. Yeah, and then while you're at it, we have a dress code. Uh, and uh, you're going to have to live up to the dress code uh, in order to be really, really saved. Okay, sure. And while you're at it, there's some food that you're going to have to eat and other food. There's a diet that we follow. And pretty soon, you've added all of these things. And having begun in the Spirit, being wonderfully set free by God, you're continuing in the flesh. And so uh, these are applications that we see in the life of Saul and in his failure. Saul had a high calling. He walked in a manner unworthy of that high calling. He finished wrong. What about us? Well, verses 11 through 13, 
you do want to finish strong by walking worthy of your calling. Several key characters in this chapter distinguish themselves by walking worthy of their calling. It cost them dearly in this life. Many of them died. But it establishes up front that if we want to walk worthy and finish strong, there's going to be a cost, there's going to be a sacrifice, but obviously the reward is worth it. And so before we get to verse 11, let's go back and see some of the people of valor in this chapter. First of all, in verse 2, then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons. Now here's the situation. Because of his gross disobedience, your dad has been rejected by God as king. He's often troubled by an evil spirit sent by the Lord. He spent many years trying to hunt down and murder the man God has anointed to be the next king. He's neglected his responsibilities as king, including the pre uh, prepping for war against the Philistines. And the night before the big battle, he's out consulting a witch trying to call up Samuel from the dead so that he can have some assurance of what's going to occur. Would you have fought next to him risking your life? Well, these boys did. And because we can be sure that Jonathan, at least, was a man led by God, a godly man, we must conclude that this was the worthy thing to do. Their calling was to submit to their father and to submit to their king. Take Jonathan as an example. We see that they weren't called to submit to anything sinful. Jonathan never cooperated with his dad in trying to kill David. But in every other area he submitted. Even though we would say that Saul was not worthy of being submitted to. That however was not their call to make as his sons. As citizens in Israel. It was God's call. Now, this is interesting because in your home, on your job, even in the church, you might think you are being asked to support a Saul-like person. Almost any time you do counseling with somebody or you're talking to somebody, they don't actually say this, but they might as well. The, husband might as well, the, the wife might as well say, hey, my husband is Saul. So there. I don't need to submit to him. He's Saul. You can't believe the crazy stuff he's doing. The husband, he doesn't actually say it, but he might as well say, my wife is Saul. It's a little bit more weird, I guess, but, you know, or at work, people come in, they complain about their boss. My boss is Saul. My pastor is Saul. Whoever it is that I'm having problem with, this person is Saul. They are not worthy for me to submit to them. Look at all the mistakes they've made. Look at what they're asking to do. And then the question is, have you been asked to do anything sinful? Are they asking you to sin? No, but they're stupid. They're, they're, they're not worthy. Okay, yeah, let me ask you again. Are they asking you to do anything sinful? No. Well, now this is what submission is, isn't it? It's easy to submit to somebody who's wonderful. Look how submissive I am. His decisions are my decisions. We are all on the same page. Whoop-de-doo. What? You want me to do what? No, you're an idiot. I don't need to submit to you. Yes, you do. That's the whole, this is it in a nutshell. And so this is, these boys, uh, you think they didn't talk about this? Hey, where's dad? Shouldn't we be talking about strategy? Uh, he's seeing the witch at Endor. That's it. I've had it. 
I'm not fighting with him. This wasn't an option for these boys. It wasn't just cultural. They had a heart to serve the Lord. I think Jonathan probably had a pretty good idea that it was over, that he was going to die. The witch, I don't know how much Saul and his men told them, but Samuel basically said, hey, tomorrow you and your sons, you're going to be with me. And so Jonathan, did he have a death wish? No, he just understood what his role was, what his responsibility was. And he submitted, not to Saul, but as unto the Lord. We need to look past the person to our calling, to our responsibility, and do it as unto the Lord. It probably won't cost you your life, per se, but it will require that you die to yourself in this life and expect to be rewarded in the next. Don't bail on the situation. Finish strong. Verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. His armor bearer would not. For he was greatly afraid, therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Armor bearers were not just weapons caddies. They were seasoned warriors. Think secret service in terms of what these guys were all about. They were like secret service agents assigned to the king uh, and, and they were in it for the long haul. Now, Saul's armor bearer disobeyed him. That's because what Saul was asking him to do was beyond wrong. No one was to kill God's anointed king. It showed tremendous respect for the office and for God who had established the office. Now, we've already seen this lesson in Saul's sons, that you have to submit, but not to what is sinful. And so when Saul said, you you have to kill me, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Because now you're asking me to sin against the Lord. But there's another lesson here. Armor bearers understood that whatever happened to their master happened to them. If the king died on the battlefield, the armor bearer died on the battlefield. There was no such thing as an armor bearer who came back to the you know, headquarters and they said, Hey, where's, uh, where's Saul? Oh, he died on the battlefield. What? He died and you're still alive? We can rectify that. See, these guys, they took the bullet. They took the sword. If if Saul was going to die at the hand of the enemy, his armor bearer was going to die first. He was going to take the arrows. He was going to take the sword, uh, whatever it took. And he understood this. When when you're looking at the want ads in Israel and then say, hey, armor bearer, I could do that. I took karate at the YMCA. I'm ready, you know, and so and so you knew that you were signing up. It was a death sentence. It, 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 you know, secret service. I mean, you get all excited about these guys, don't you? They take the bullet because the president is more important than them, whether he's a bozo or not. Just a general comment. I'm not talking about any particular president. How dare you? Uh, (laughs) Anyway, um, now I have no opinion on whether it was right or wrong for him to fall on his sword. It's what was expected of him. I'm more interested in what we can glean from the armor bearer's death. The armor bearer, listen, he identified with Saul in his death. Saul died. And so he said, I have to die too. Saul died. I died. Jesus died on the cross. It was necessary in order for him to take upon himself the punishment and penalty for the sins of the human race. 
There's a remarkable spiritual identification that takes place when you become a Christian. Because Jesus died and you believe in him, the Bible says you also died. And because Jesus rose from the dead and you believe in him, the Bible says you also rose from the dead. You are identified with Christ. What happened to him happened to you. You don't fall on a sword. You bow down and kneel at the foot of the cross, reckoning yourself dead to sin and alive to God. To the extent that you do that, you can't help but walk worthy of your calling. Now, there's a third set of individuals in this chapter who walked worthy. Now we're in verse 11. When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night, took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Forty years prior to this, Saul had rescued Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. It was one of the few things he did that was good when he started strong as a king. Regardless of the terrible king he had become, the men of that city risked their lives to retrieve the mutilated remains of the king of Israel and give him a proper burial. They went into enemy territory after their army had been conquered uh, and they took down the bodies of these men and they brought them back. Now, the Jews didn't normally cremate. In this case, it was probably to hide the mutilation. Notice, although they cremated the bodies, they did bury the bones. I get asked a lot about whether it's okay to be cremated. One argument against it is that the Jews were meticulous in burying their dead. And even when they cremated someone, uh, like Saul and his sons, they buried the bones. And uh, people feel like this is a strong argument against cremation and for burial. I was thinking about that and I realized that the Jews were also uniquely associated with their promised land. For example, Joseph, when he uh, was in Egypt, he made the Jews promise that they would take his bones with them from Egypt and bury them in the promised land. So it wasn't just burial that was on their minds. It was burial in the land promised them by God. So I'm not sure that the Jews are the best example of whether we should be buried or cremated. Uh, because they are uniquely identified with a land in a way that other people are not. I submit for your consideration that as a people we have no land. We're looking for the city whose builder and maker is God. The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven. I see no prohibition in the scriptures, really, to cremation. It's an individual decision. It, and I mean this in, you know, in a non-facetious way. Uh, you're, no matter how well you're embalmed or preserved, uh, you're going to end up, uh, you know, dust anyway. Uh, and so it's no harder for God to bring you together. I mean, God isn't in heaven trying to make a list of who's going to be harder to bring together in the resurrection. You know, man, that guy... Wow. You know, I mean, he's, you know, it's not that if you get buried, you're going to go first or anything like that because you're almost, you know, because you're pretty wasted already. But, uh, you know, so I, I know it's a very serious issue and that's why I'm making so much fun of it. But uh, uh, if you want to be cremated, uh, that's your business. As long as uh, it's, you know, it's a faith, it's not sin to you. I don't think that the Bible really speaks 
uh, one way or the other about that. It's more of a cultural thing than a theological thing. And so I was listening to a message the other day by a teacher I really appreciate uh, who really made a big deal about how you really need to be buried and how cremation is almost sinful. And I just don't see that in the scripture. And most Bible teachers don't. I mean, uh, if you, they usually say, but you might want to be buried just in case. And I'm thinking, well, just in case what? Just in case it really is in the Bible, but it's not. I mean, you know, just so if you want to be cremated, uh, God bless you. Personally, I want to be made into a diamond. Uh, there's an outfit now that that cremates you and, and they can turn your remains into a diamond. Uh, this I'm serious. Uh, just Google it and you'll see. And there's different levels, different clarities. Uh, but uh, I think that's kind of cool, you know. So back to the men of Jabesh Gilead. They risked their lives to enter hostile territory to correct the dishonor done to Saul and his sons. Now, we are by definition always in hostile territory. As I mentioned earlier, the devil is the god of this world. Every worthy step we take is a risk when we're out in the world. What about the mutilated bodies? Is there some lesson there for us? Jesus was mutilated by beatings and by the plucking out of his beard. His was a cruel, shameful criminal's death in which he was literally put on public display. When you and I walk worthy, pressing forward for the high calling, non-believers don't see the Lord as someone mutilated and murdered and to be ashamed of. They don't see the historical Jesus. They see Jesus alive and providing you with power to live life as he intended it to be lived. And so this may be the most powerful of the images. You know, I don't think the average non-believer is thinking of Jesus all the time. But if they do and they think of the historical man, Jesus Christ, who maybe was a great prophet, maybe was a great teacher, but he died a shameful criminal's death. But when you and I walk worthy of the Lord, they don't see that. They see a risen, living Savior who has endued us with power from on high, who's filled us with His Holy Spirit, who is poised and ready to return to earth a second time. Consider these further exhortations from the Word to walk worthy and just let the Word of God wash over you. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 Walk worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Colossians 1.10 Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Philippians 1.27 Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Concerning what it means to walk worthy, one author makes it simple by saying, act in a way that fits the great value and the glorious nature of God and the gospel and your calling. God's word is his enabling. You and I, therefore, can walk worthy. We can finish strong. Let's do it.